The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. With the Oscar nominations announced and voting just around the corner, we want to call your attention to our interviews with Academy Award-nominated filmmakers. For example, check out our conversation with Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy about their film, The Martha Mitchell Effect. Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General and Nixon campaign chief John Mitchell, was dismissed at the time of Watergate as being crazy and even a drunk. She was, in fact, the victim of a well-planned gaslighting campaign hatched by Nixon, his top aides, and even her own husband. Stunning in its revelations and highly immersive in its cinematic approach, this powerful film will grant you a new perspective on those dark days of American history. You can watch The Martha Mitchell Effect now on Netflix. Today, I spoke with Evgenia Arbogaeva about her short documentary, Haul Out. This film is set in the Russian Arctic Circle and features a haul out, a now all too frequent phenomenon where walruses will beach themselves in between feeding on mollusk beds. The ice that once was there is no longer there, and they can only find shelter on the beach. This is Evgenia's first film. She directed with her brother, Maxime. But despite being their first film, it's one of the five Oscar nominations for the best short documentary. Like another Oscar-nominated short, The Elephant Whisperers, this very much focuses on the relationship between human and a large mammal. And like that film as well, it's also more deeply about climate change and the ways that animals, humans, the whole world will have to adapt to the changing world. If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to our pod and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Evgenia Abugava about her film, Haul Out. Evgenia, welcome to Top Docs. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the opening and maybe we'll talk mainly about the opening. I really love this because it's sort of like a mystery story or even a horror film in some ways. We see kind of a barren landscape on the sea. There's even a wreck of an old ship, really a tugboat. And then we see a man almost as if he appears from, like he's a ghost getting off this ship. And you slowly bring him closer to us first below from an ice cave. And then he's on a rocky promontory. He's bearing a rifle. He's looking through binocular. He's smoking. He's clearly waiting. He's dictating things like they aren't here yet. We don't know who the they are, and we don't know who he is. Is he military? Is he a spy? Why did you want to create this sense of mystery here at the beginning? This place, besides, the, of course, the most amazing phenomenon of gathering of walruses, this place is also, there's so many um, elements that we wanted to give space to in this film, like wind, the sea, the sounds, and the place itself is very spiritually charged. And so I was wondering how to just give space to all of this atmosphere for the viewer to take in before we jump into the main kind of question. So yeah, I think that was our way to give space to the elements. Yeah, the soundscape in this film is wonderful as well. It's beautifully shot, but it's a wonderful soundscape. A lot of the shots in the opening are very static shots in that there's little or almost no camera movement. And of course, this will set us up for a little more movement later on, importantly. But also, I almost felt like, you know, there's one shot where you get a shot of like 
a stove and there's a kettle and a pot on the stove. It's almost like a tableau. And I really felt like a photographic aesthetic here early on. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, this is a, this is my first film. I'm a photographer. So that is why there is so much stillness in the film, I suppose. And it kind of adds to this meditativeness of film. The shots that are quite still, especially in the beginning when I was just kind of adjusting to the moving image, they were all quite still. And then where there's movement, that's my brother Max. And I felt we were quite different in, in the way we work, but I felt that for this film, our methods really complemented each other. Very much so. I want to talk about one sequence, again, taking kind of the photographic element here. I should say in the opening, almost nothing quote unquote happens, and yet there's a lot of work being done. And so there's one very subtle scene in the beginning where we find this character, Maxime, not your brother, a different Maxime, very deliberately picks up a book. And then we see a point of view shot from his point of view, right? And I want to talk about this because I think this reveals things about the film, both in terms of content and in terms of filmic approach. So let's talk about the content first. The book he picks up is a relatively recent monograph, 2008, about, and again, apologize for the pronunciation, about the great early 20th century ethnographer, Bogorov. Can you tell us who Bogorov was and why he's important to the film? Thank you for this question. The book scene was important for us also because the scientist, he's such a bookworm. <laughs> he, all <laughs> he does, he observes the walruses, survives, but the rest of the time he's reading books. He brings library with him every time. And he's very much interested in the history of the place and the history of indigenous people who live nearby. When I was saying about earlier that this place is spiritually charged, this particular beach used to be a settlement of Chukchi people many, many years ago for centuries. There was earth huts made of whale bones covered with earth, and still scientists find artifacts, the arrows and the tools made of walrus tusks or from stones. Somehow you always feel this presence of this culture, of this people, of the spirits. And he, he feels that and he wants to understand and he wants to also in the places like this, you realize very quickly that you're just a guest and you need to live by the rules of the place and you need to respect the place, respect the spirits and also carry on your mission in a way that doesn't harm anyone. He kind of intuitively feels that and He's reading so much about history of Chukchi people. And this book in particular, you know, it has this archival photographs. Some of them are from this place where we were filming people wearing traditional clothes back in the day, hunting walruses, which they still do. It's a subsistent hunt that sustains them and have been sustaining them for millennia. So that was a, an important moment in the film for us, even though maybe it's not very clear, but we just wanted to... Put it there and see what you can make of it. Yeah. And Bogorov himself was an ethnographer. He was amongst these people, right? He spent a lot of time in a lot of places, including New York, yes. St. Petersburg, 1917. During the revolutionary period, he takes over the ethnography across the country. He was a very important early chronicler of these folks. Yes, absolutely. And he was one of those people who were actually living in the communities and really telling the stories of people without this kind of colonial view. His work in Chukotka is very important still. Knowing this, I felt like almost some of the emptiness early on in the film is also sort of a lament for these people's lost culture. Yeah, absolutely. And now with the climate change, it's such a huge shift, cultural and 
on, on so many levels. When you cannot anymore live off the land and the sea because it changes so much, you as a people need to adapt and change, and it's a very painful process. Other thing that happens in this scene, or as I said, I want to talk about the content, but also the approach. And so there's this approach I think we see throughout the film. Again, as I said, Maxime very deliberately picks up the book, and then we very deliberately have a point of view shot. And we see this multiple times. So there's very late in the film, we see Maxime pick up his binoculars, very purposely put it to his eyes. And then we have a shot of the sky, the birds in the sky. Or we have, for example, similarly, a little different, but similarly, we have a shot where he supposedly goes up on the roof, but it feels very staged, right? There are ways in which I felt you were kind of revealing how the film was being made. Yeah, we were in this hut and filming for three and a half months. So we had so much time and of course, so much opportunities to shoot different scenes in different time, light, situations. Some of the things we would talk through with our protagonist, because for example, on the roof, you cannot just climb on the roof because what happens, walruses, even though they can look quite aggressive, but they're actually very vulnerable because they're not mm. in their natural environment. So anything that is not natural to them, like a smell, sound, or even when you stand up on the roof and they see that there's something erecting there, they get scared. And then this panic sends through the hole out. And of course, we don't want to do that. So on the roof, for example, we first needed to climb there and to set up and be very low. And you do it very slowly because every movement mm. can spook the walruses. Everything we were doing, we were working around animals so that we don't impact them in any way. And so, you know, as I said, this first five minutes, it's very still, it's very quiet, it's a lot of waiting. And then at about the five minute mark, six minute mark, we're in the dark. So there's headlamp, the camera starts moving a bit and we go to the door and there's strange sounds at the door. And to my mind, you know, it's almost like a zombie movie or an alien film, alien invasion film. Yeah, absolutely. When we first came to this place a year before we started shooting the film, we kind of arrived just before this big haul out. And I remember I was sleeping in my sleeping bag and Max, my brother, he went out outside, then he came back and he was breathing really heavily, pacing around. And then he was like, hey, get up. You need to see this. This is crazy. <laughs> I came out and I opened the door and there they were. And it was also in this blue light of early dawn around five o'clock in the morning or four. And there was just this mass of walruses and it was so surreal. Also. I haven't shaken off the sleep yet and everything was just felt like we're in some parallel universe and this feeling stayed with us and we wanted to find it in the film as well to show it in the film. Yeah, it's extremely well done. The filming of the walrus is amazing, just the sheer numbers and then the close-ups. But I was really struck by the interactions between Maxime and the walruses at a distance. And it should be said, these are enormous animals with these scimitar-like tusks, you know, just could destroy you easily. But it was really striking how they often, it seemed like they were trying to communicate with Max, sometimes a challenge, sometimes a plea for help. Did it seem like that to you at the moment as well? Yes, personally, to be there in the hut in the middle of all these animals and also just being completely helpless, right? Because we couldn't do anything. We were just standing there observing them through the open door. It felt at some point also, you know, because you spend such a long time there and oftentimes you just don't say a word. It's very quiet. You kind of almost forget that you're human somehow and you're just there and you're 
among them. And it's a very different way of seeing animals. Maxim, for sure, the scientist, he has a very special relationship to these animals. He'd been doing it for 10 years and you can tell that every time he comes back, it's like he's coming home. And we were trying to film that, that connection, but it's just, hopefully we managed to come close, but still there's so much there kind of invisible. But just one thing that I think at some point he starts to look like walrus himself, like resembling a a walrus. And in fact, everybody, Chukchi people in the village nearby, when he comes back from his field season, everybody calls him a walrus. Also because he has this smell, you know, (laughs) he smells the recognizable smell from like meters away in Chukchi kind of worldview. And in Chukchi culture, there's so many myths and legends about human-animal transformation, human-animal relationship that you can't help but think of the stories when you're there. Like the some Chukchi people say that some of the walruses that are the older ones, the ones that are more aggressive, they're the ones that, you know, exchange spirits with the deceased people or something like that. And you start to see animals through this prism too and see some similarities with humans. I mean, it's, after watching them for such a long time, there are so many things that we've observed, but also we were careful, of course, not to anthropomorphize them too much. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important point. I do feel like you kept that distance. They're not anthropomorphized. They are creatures though, with feelings and and desires and wishes. Some of the interactions are sad. There's this smaller walrus that's there alone and the walrus's back looks infected as though it'd been speared multiple times. And Max stands in a real sense from him too, of like, he deeply feels for the walrus, but feels he can't do anything at the same time. Yeah, that was a very difficult situation because this cub uh, got stuck in the hut. It was injured and it was just slowly dying, really. He lost his mother and, and there's nothing we could do. We couldn't just put it back in this sea of walruses where he would be suffocated right away. And all this time I'm thinking, what can I do? Because for days I would just see it slowly dying and the scientist was like just let it just die in peace and that was very hard to watch of course there's some technical issues or just issues of comfort being in this kind of rugged environment but i think the hardest part for us was the emotional part of it all there are also some comic moments so there's a moment where some of the walrus start coming in and maxim goes and grabs a broom and you're like No, there's no way he's going to chase the walruses out with a broom. But in fact, he kind of does. And they get stuck in the doorway. He says one at a time. And they get stuck in the doorway. I don't don't know if you're familiar with the Three Stooges, but there's like this comic moment where they're stuck in the doorway. This was an important moment for us to include in the film because exactly this gentleness of him pushing them away with a broom, that just speaks how he interacts with them. He's there. He's tried to be as invisible as possible for them and to have the least impact he could possibly have on the animals. He's very gentle with them. The other thing that really struck me was how hard some of these shots must have been to get. So early on, we have shots of Maxime inside and then outside before the walrus is there. But then later we have another shot. He's like smoking, I think. And then we have a shot outside in the dark at night. It's a beautiful shot. But then you realize whoever shot the sea shot, either you or your brother must have been behind some walruses. Like, how did you get that shot? So the way it went at the hole out, 
is the walruses, they come and go. There was three waves of this holding out. And the reason, just to explain to you a little bit how it works, in the ideal world, walruses would just migrate by the sea and rest on the floating ice and then feed on mollusks fields on the bottom of the ocean. And so that's how they live. But because there is no ice, they have to haul out on the beach, but they still need to eat. So they go eat on this field of mussels, then go back to the beach, rest, go back, feed, go back to the beach. And they did it at that season when we were there three times. So there was this gaps between us being surrounded. And at some point we realized that, okay, we need to show, have some shots from outside. And when there was this, a little bit of space that walruses gave us, Max, my brother, he escaped and he just set up a camp on the mountain nearby and he was shooting from there. You know, it's really only as we go along in the film, as we said, it's kind of mysterious at the beginning, we get a little more information. Towards the end, at the 43rd data observation, Maxime narrates into his dictaphone, the walruses arrive weak and exhausted, hard to travel by open water, no ice to rest on, panic and stampedes lead to injuries. And by the way, for an English speaker, the Greek word panic, you can hear it in the Russian. So it comes through clearly. Can you talk about holding off on that kind of scientific information until later in the film? And by the way, there's titles at the very end, folks, that explain everything, but don't jump to those because the pleasure here is in seeing the film. Yeah, exactly. We wanted to give space and opportunity for a viewer to arrive to this realization on her own because that's what how we felt. When we arrived first time, we just experienced it and this realization of this huge problem and the reason for it and just the scale slowly accumulated and hit us. And that was a very um, strong feelings. And I wanted to have the same effect in the film. And again, to give people space to admire the animals in the beginning without this heavy messaging and then slowly understand what is happening. And then once you're there, once you understand, once you understood it yourself without narration, without somebody telling you what to think, then in the end, there were text slides that kind of cemented and anchor it to leave you with kind of a full understanding. The very end, you know, it kind of mimics the opening. We see the landscape again. Walruses are gone. So it's a very empty landscape. And this time, though, there's snow. I think it really is great because it gives us a sense of a season passing. We get a sense of time. But Maxime boards up the cabin and he walks away. And I really was left with a feeling like, is he going to come back? Are the walruses going to come back? How many more years can this go on? Because this is not good for the walruses, obviously. Yeah, so this scene when he's going away in the snowy landscape, in this complete emptiness, was important for us because I was thinking and constantly were thinking about what the future holds as we lose biodiversity as we lose species, as we lose so many animals around us, the idea of like, we may arrive to the point when we will be alone is a very scary one. And that winter loneliness somehow reflected that thought. Yes, he's coming back. He's coming back every year. He's so dedicated to this research and how many years he says as long as he can. And scientific work in the field is such that you just you do as much as you can and then you pass it to someone else and it just accumulates through people's lives and this continuity of recording the data. That's just the nature of the scientific observations 
And so that's why also I felt it was so important to tell the story of Maxim because the scientists, they're this invisible kind of people on the forefront of climate change, climate study, and we know so little of them and their process. Evgenio, congratulations to you and your brother Max on this. It's your first documentary and it's nominated for Academy Award. That's amazing. <laughs> and it is really beautifully shot, beautifully edited, and just a great depiction of the walruses, but also of this person, Max. And it's a hopeful, I think, in our attempt to, if not save the walruses, to understand them and to, well, what would you say? <laughs> How should we be left from this film? I mean, there are so many ways of, of talking about climate change, right? And we are, as filmmakers, we're constantly thinking of what is the right way? What is the most effective way? And some people choose the angle of hope. Some people choose angle of desperation, like I guess our film does. But I think it's important to have all kinds of angles, all kinds of storytelling. And we just have to continue telling and screaming about the stories collectively, all together, reporting from all parts of the world, us from our part of the world. With this film, we just wanted to really join forces with other storytellers. Hopefully, if people can be left with knowledge of what's happening, that would be already a great achievement for us. If you could talk about it, what's up next for you? I've been working in the Arctic region for most of my career. It's just the region that is now so important to talk about and to tell stories from that we'll just continue working in the region in the circumpolar world. Thanks so much for your time. Congratulations again. Thank you so much, Michael. 